just sent in the stopwatch. I know you'll appreciate that. I've never been in a congregation, congregational church before where you shook your hands up in there and did all. Amen. Take me back to my Baptist roots. Let's pray. Not that far back. Relax. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am thrilled to be here today, so thrilled that I asked your pastor to sit down where I could keep an eye on him while I preached. (laughs) The title of this sermon is Becoming Maladjusted for Jesus, and it is ultimately a tribute to Martin Luther King, Jr., I've recently been reading a book entitled Hillbilly Allergy. Anybody read the book? Well, I'm reading it in part because I'm one one generation and five college degrees removed from the coal mines of West Virginia. I've spent the summers with my grandma with an outhouse and a a pump where you you had to have some water in a cup to prime it. I've been the whole nine yards. Uh, But this book written by J.D. Vance, a Harvard Law School graduate, tells the story of his upbringing in the Appalachian areas of Ohio and Kentucky, same as West Virginia. But he tells this story. In his fourth grade year, he watched the biggest bully in the fourth grade terrorize this smaller, weaker person day after day, week after week. And J.D. said he felt like he needed to stand up. But the bully was bigger than he was, and he was afraid. Finally, one day, he went home to his grandmother, who he called Mamma, and he said, I was feeling terribly guilty, and I tearfully confessed to my Mamma what I had not done. And he said that what she told me, I have never, ever forgotten. Sometimes, honey, you have to fight, even when you're not defending yourself. Sometimes it's just the right thing to do. Marl, you need to stand up to that bully. And stand up he did. Not quite in the way I think Jesus would have, but stand up he did. Now Jesus faced the bullies of his time. Uh, The religious aristocracy, uh, and those haven't changed. And Rome, the greatest military power of the day. Jesus stood up to them, practicing nonviolence systematically throughout the whole tenure of his ministry. He stood up to the powers, stood up for the little guy, time and time again, until the ultimate, which was the cleansing of the temple under the control of Rome and the aristocracy, and for which Jesus was killed. He stood up for justice. He stood up for the little guy. He was always keeping it real. Some would call it maladjusted. But Jesus had no tolerance for hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another, that's the definition of hypocrisy. Like not standing up for the little guy, while at the same time claiming you're Christian. Now the scripture from Amos comes to us in the mid-700s B.C., uh, before Christ, uh, And he was a southern preacher preaching to the north. Now, I will say, having grown up in Arizona, that the west is the best and the southwest is better yet. (laughs) 
But at, back even before the time of Jesus, Amos, one of the Hebrew prophets, uh, there was prosperity in the land. But it wasn't shared prosperity. And there was as well, along with this prosperity, something that you hear on the airwaves today. Uh, there was a wonderful, vibrant, religious revival going on. Church was big at the time. And the idea was, if you were doing well, it's because God approved of you. People were praising the Lord all over the place. And all over the land, they were ta- the rich people were talking about how God had blessed them. It's kind of like that prosperity gospel that we have among us in the United States today. I think you might have a little bit of it here in Houston. I'm not sure. Now, you might reasonably conclude that God was very pleased with God's people. But that wasn't the case. In response to all this celebrating, here's the word from Amos, and I read it before. I hate your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, nor your burnt offerings. I will not accept them. Your fatted beasts, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your hearts. I will not listen. Now, that was not an artistic comment on the part of Amos. It was probably good music. But it wasn't the music of the heart that a God of justice expects and demands. Now, why, you might ask, is God so angry? God is angry because people were claiming to love God and living a lie. They're claiming all is well in the land and all was not well. God is enraged because the lost, the last, and the least have been left behind. Not the novel that sold so many. Different kind of left behind. The super religious types were not taking care of the little guy. Folks, listen to me. It's not rocket science. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, the Bible records God's bottom line. It doesn't take a doctorate. doesn't take a master's to figure it out. The bottom line is, from Genesis on, we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. That's at the concrete foundation of the faith. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, do you remember what he said? Love the Lord your... Oh, I know you remember. You're supposed to. (laughs) If you can't remember that, we need to talk after. (laughs) Apparently, you haven't had enough education. (laughs) Yeah, I love to tease him. I'm sorry. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And neighbor, understand, didn't mean a narrow concept of neighbor. It meant everybody, everything, including God's creation. In a nutshell, folks, we bear responsibility for the welfare of others. In particular, God's people, the community of faith, the church, we are obligated for those who have no voice to speak. So I would submit to you that I hope you will find yourself walking in some Martin Luther King parade tomorrow as I will find myself doing the same in Austin. But this theology is not new. During the time of Jesus, children were powerless. They were to be neither seen nor heard. They were considered to be a blessing, but in many ways their value was 
more accurately measured by their utility to the family. And when people began to bring their children to Jesus to bless them, well, the disciples began to be offended. And they were frustrated. And they were saying, hey, 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 the teacher doesn't have time. Uh, He has more important things to do. That's not our priority right now. And Jesus had nothing to do with that. And he said to his disciples and to all who would listen, let the children come unto me. For to such as these belongs the realm of God. If we're the body of Christ here on earth, can we do less? Hear the words of the philosopher G.K. Chesterton, Christian philosopher. He said, and I quote, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. There are lots of churches that overflow with people because it only takes this sermon. You're okay the way you are. Don't change a thing. God loves you. You're perfect. And give some money to the church. Well, that's a great sermon. Probably not one you're going to hear from me. You're lovely, but you're not perfect. Neither am I. Human beings, all of us, and it starts with me and Jonathan and everybody else who wears this stuff, human beings are forever tempted to water down their faith, to take the easy way. And from time to time, though, there comes among us human beings who take the hard road who choose to keep it real. In the early 1700s, Reverend Samuel Sewell, pastor of Old South Church in Boston, uh, wrote a tract entitled The Selling of Joseph. It became the early foundation of the abolitionist movement, the movement against slavery. And from the Atlantic shores of the east to the flatlands and rolling hills of Kansas, congregational people moved to keep Kansas free. Uh, I pastored one of those churches, First Congregational Church, Manhattan, Kansas, founded in 1856. My son was associate pastor of the other church in Kansas, Plymouth, at Lawrence, founded, they claim, in 1855, but they're not accurate. (laughs) They were founded as anti-slavery churches. Tradition has it that both were stops on the Underground Railroad. Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas made personal contributions to the church in Manhattan, to the building of the first meeting house. The earliest ministers carried firearms in order to defend against the forces of slavery. The church was formed by Eastern people, keeping it real, who moved their whole life from the East Coast to Kansas. And that's a move, folks in order to keep it free. We're talking about a serious commitment to God's justice here. But it goes back even further. I pastored a church, First Congregational Church, Darien, Kansas. Prior, the church was founded prior to the Revolutionary War. One Sunday during the Revolution, the British came and arrested the founding minister, whose name was Mather, and 50 of the members of the congregation and carted them off to prison. Not all of them survived because they were rebellious like good congregational people. 
They were also added to the British by Tories in the congregation, also good congregational people. So now you understand I was there. Conflict was, was in the gene pool for that church, but so was authenticity. It is important that we take care of our own people, but it's not enough that we take care of our own. God's people, we who are in the church, are obligated to speak for those who have no voice. I speak not of option, but obligation. We also are obligated to listen to those who heretofore have had no voice. We have an obligation to be oppressed. Speaking out is not always difficult or is always difficult, even in the best of circumstances. It's always challenging. It's always easier to remain quiet, to remain the quiet in the land. Our comfort zone is a place in which we all love to dwell. But I'll tell you something. Speaking truth to power, speaking truth to power, regardless of the cost and consequence, that is in the heart of of the congregational gene pool. That is who we are. Is it uncomfortable to rise up and be heard? Yes. Our fear is that we'll be wrong, that the experts will know more than we know. Our fear is that people will notice us and conclude that we're not a fit. Our fear is that people will hear our words, behold that we are maladjusted people, and think we're just maladjusted and aren't capable of anything but stirring the pot. We'll hear that a lot in the coming days as we stand and speak for justice. But when Martin Luther King was speaking to the masses of people concerning the civil rights for all Americans, he was continually vexed by so many who thought they knew better, who didn't like him standing up and speaking out, and counseled him to more gradualism, with which he responded with the fierce urgency of now sermon. Martin Luther King, speaking in 1961 at a commitment, commencement, was calling upon the students to enter into a struggle for civil rights at the risk of being seen as maladjusted. He preached, and I quote, If you will allow the preacher to come out in me now, let me say to you that I never did intend to adjust to the evils of discrimination and segregation. I never did intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never did intend to adjust to economic conditions that take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I never did intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism and to the self-defeating effects of physical violence. I call upon people, all people of goodwill, to be maladjusted. Because it may well be that the salvation of this world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. I want to say to you that the gaze of God is not merely local, but global as well. As Christians, we are citizens of the world. Jesus said, whenever and wherever you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us be maladjusted. Just as the prophet Amos, who in the midst of the injustice of his day would cry out 
words that echo across the centuries. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. In the words of Martin Luther King, let us be maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could not exist half slave and half free. Let us be maladjusted as Jesus of Nazareth, who could look into the eyes of the men and women of his generation and cry out, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. I believe, I believe, that it is through maladjustment that we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of human beings being inhumane towards one another. You know, the funny thing was that Martin's maladjustment even extended to those who were supporting him. April 4th, 1967, one year before his death, was his most uh, controversial speech, and it took place at Riverside Church, the holy church of us progressives. King was urged not to make this speech. His call, he was told, was to civil rights movement, to the plight of people of color. But Martin Luther King had another idea. He apparently felt that, that... Sometimes, folks, you have to fight even when you're not defending yourself. Apparently, he had a little bit of hillbilly wisdom to go along with his soul and his education. Sometimes, it's just the right thing to do. He spoke against the Vietnam War. Now, now, this time, now, it may seem difficult. Regardless of your political leanings, left or right, the country is not a good place right now. It's not. In these conditions, especially in these conditions, God's people, whatever their political party, need to do whatever needs to be done, regardless of cost. The easy thing would be to sit back and wait and, and be comfortable while things sort themselves out. But the call, the authentic call, is to be people who rise up in defense of not any particular party or political viewpoint, but people who rise up in defense of justice and the little guy. If we do our part, I assure you, God will do God's part. And in the words of Martin Luther King, there will come a day when all God's children, black and white, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old spiritual, free at last, free at last, God Almighty.